Okay, so today we're going to be talking to Jim Hunter, who is the Chief Technologist and Scientist at GreenWave Technology. GreenWave is a leader in home automation and the Internet of Things. And Jim has over 25 years experience in all things automation and bots. If you're really interested in understanding what AI really is and how AI and automation can help your business going forward, this is the podcast for you. Enjoy. Jim, uh, welcome to the podcast from Transform. Uh, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. So, Jim, uh, we've been friends for a while, and I was keen to get you on one of these podcasts uh, because you've got a super interesting background and a super interesting uh, job role now. You're working on some really exciting stuff. So I thought it'd be great to get together and, and chat about these things. So, Jim, tell us a little bit about your background. Where, where have you come from? Yeah, so I do have a kind of a different uh, route to, uh, to success. Um, let's start, uh, so military. Uh, I ended up going the military route because I first went the college route and, um, well, let's just say I got kicked out for hacking. <laughs> so once you're a computer scientist um, or computer science uh, wannabe, meaning that was my direction, um, and you lose your computer ID because of questionable activity, you have to find another career path at least for a little while. So I joined the military and uh, was qualified um, Navy nuclear. So I, <laughs> instead of uh, being able to write code, I actually started, stopped, and controlled the uh, nuclear reactors. Much, much safer. Much safer. And uh, <laughs> exactly. It, it, it seems like it didn't make perfect sense to me. Um, but that was a really great opportunity because I was able to uh, spend a lot of time uh, thinking about the next step and thinking about... Uh, how I wanted to have my life unfold. And part of that really led to computers. I fell in love with computers at a very young age. Uh, my older brother uh, found a lot of success very early with computers, and uh, he was gracious enough to actually uh, gift me for my birthday my very first computer. It was a Texas Instrument uh, 994A and a nice. TI-99 um, ill-fated machine. Uh, they sold it for $49 and thought they were going to make the money on the software, and it just did not happen. Nope. And I, uh, but I, I remember that computer, and I used that computer for as long as it was usable. But even when I was in the military, I started thinking about how technology could do things with people's lives. So this was back in the early 90s. And uh, I started a company while I was in the military um, called Next Generation Living. And what we did was automate homes. So I started to learn about smart home. I started to learn about the technologies that were like, you know, at the time it was like magical, wonderful Jetson type living. I didn't realize a lot of it was marketing back then, um, but it was really exciting and it looked like something I really wanted to, to get involved in. So I did. And so while I was in the military, um, not only did I start that, but I also started uh, writing software. And in doing so, I kind of felt not only do I have the power inside of the box, inside of the computer, but now I'm able to actually reach outside of that computer and actually touch real life things. It's, it's one thing to be able to write code and see it you know, blip up a pixel on your computer. It's quite another thing when you can turn on a fan or something moving um, or a light bulb or something like that. So I got hooked. And that hooked you back in it, the so. 90s from day one, having that physical connection. It, did, it really did. Yeah. For me, like that it really, was... It really did. It was a... Uh, you know, for me, that Go was ahead. always the same with design was actually physical things that could live in the world, whether it was an app or a print product, you know, that was what hooked me with design as well. So it's interesting that that affected you with, 
with code, how you could affect the physical world. Yeah, and I think that I think that your love for design, which I've seen your work, and it's actually pretty amazing, pretty fantastic. I think I said that to you the first time I saw the user interface for uh, LaunchCloud. I said, "Wow, this stuff looks really good, and it flows really well." Mm. I think for me, code, elegant code, and and elegant not because of necessarily the 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 code um, itself, the words that are used, the the programs that are used, but the flow of the code is huge. The, the ability to kind of take one idea and spend a lot of functionality around that idea so you have an elegant structure. Mm-hmm. I love that. And so I think there's some similarities between the design mind and the programming mind from that perspective. And you're a programmer as well. Yeah. So I think that all of that, <laughs> you, would, you would have to agree with that, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so that took me to a place where I got out of the military in 95, and I wanted to keep doing this. So um, I started to connect to people in the industry. I can't speak loudly enough about how important it is to have mentors and how important it is to find people who are doing what you're doing but doing it at the next stage or, or further down the line to some level of success. So I was able to do that and, and create some pretty um, great networking relationships and ended up forming a company um, that uh, called Premise Systems. And Premise was a cool company. It was a, it was a lesson in business and it was a lesson in partnership. And, and even uh, we even merged with a company at one point. But we ended up selling that company in uh, 2002. Not the best year to sell a company, actually. It was mm-hmm. a little crash that happened in 2001 and it was still going on. So I immediately started a new company called Near Media and I worked with that company and um, did some consulting on the side because you have to because apparently food is necessary to survive. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> apparently so. <laughs> and in um, 2007, we got funded uh, by a VC and changed the name of the company to Four Home. And we started to grow that company. And that was actually a really fun experience. Probably one of my most formative experiences in the space. I met a lot of friends, made a lot of connections, became known in the industry for what I would love to do, which is a, a fantastic thing. And in 2010, end of 2010, we sold that to Motorola. Mm-hmm. At the same time, my last company had landed at Motorola as well. So a lot of good stuff, met a lot of people in the industry. And even today, I work with the guy that I brought in to be the VP of engineering of Forhome, who ended up becoming the CEO because we had a coup. Yeah, it's a great story there, but probably more than <laughs> more time we have here. But now he's the CTO where I am, and I'm the chief scientist and evangelist uh, for a company. It's actually doing quite well mm-hmm. in the space of Internet of Things is, how, is what we call it today. Yeah, and that's GreenWave today. That's GreenWave Systems. Yeah, absolutely. I've been there for three years and they've been around since 2008 and really solving a lot of the challenges at a much higher scale than, uh, than I had done in the past and, and surrounded by just absolutely amazing people. So your role there, what exactly does that entail? That sounds like a crazy title. <laughs> it's a fun, it's a fun title. Um, so the first side of it is chief scientist. Um, that means that it's my job to look to the future. It's, uh, it might as well be the chief futurist because I look two to five years ahead of where we're going. And then I build demonstrations. I build 
ways for us to actually visualize or, or in, in the case of voice control, you know, put, uh, put demonstrations together so you can see where things are going. Not necessarily product yet, but anytime you talk to big customers that are committing to you for large amounts of money, millions and millions of dollars, they want to see that the company has vision. Yeah. So it's my job to represent that vision for the company. On the other side of it, and, and part of it as well, is I'm an evangelist. Mm. <clears throat> so I share my passion with the industry. I, I write in TechCrunch and VentureBeat. I speak a lot, a lot of public speaking. In fact, uh, Matt, when we met, we met at an, an event, and I was there speaking. Um, I actually spoke four times at that particular event called Web Summit. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a serendipitous meeting. And yeah. Again, we probably won't get into it here, <laughs> but that is was under the evangelist role to do that. So it's kind yeah, of like marketing cool. and technology meet in the future. I mean, that future thinking seems to be what you've always been doing because you know the early 90s, you know, doing Internet of Things was almost probably unheard of. So you've always kind of been looking into that future, I'd say. And now you've got the title to match it. And so is that what you think drives you is, is not just producing stuff that actually physically works, but stuff that is in the future. So we're always reaching forward. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. I, I think the, the, I'm being in this for 25 years, which if you do the math and you look back at it, it's like, wow. Yeah, that is, that is, and it's painful to call that a quarter of a century, but that's <laughs> what it is. But being able to do this for that long, you see a lot of cycles. You see a lot of things that are happening over and over and over. And, and sometimes you're sitting on the sidelines and going, what are you guys thinking? We've already been through this like three times. And other times you look and say, wow, that is truly unique. Or you guys are doing this exactly right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's actually, uh, that I'm actually doing in the industry as well is I'm a coach at Alchemist Accelerator out of San Francisco. So I get to mentor startup companies and, and help new companies come along that don't know that this has happened before or don't have the, the basic, you know, understandings in business that you only get through experience. Oh, so great. That's yeah. one of the big things. Like I said, in the very beginning, it's important to have network. It's important to have mentors that can help guide you along the way. Mm -hmm. And it's great to be able to provide that now back into the industry. I, I actually mentor a few people as well at startups at early stages and uh, through Virgin actually. And, and I find that, you know, even though you're mentoring them, it helps you work out your methodology uh, of understanding. It's tremendous. Um, it's tremendous. It's, it's a two-way thing. It's totally a two-way thing. And, and, and not just having the mentors that help you, but you helping people is really a way that can help accelerate you and help accelerate your concepts and uh, your understanding of subject matter, I think. Um, so I'm a big believer in that too. I, I, I me too, absolutely. And it also helps you to... Um, um, to be able to really refine your approach because as you start to talk to these companies, it's not just you in a vacuum, right? You could sit here and talk against a, a podcast or a wall all day long, but until you actually you know, give advice that's taken and you see the results of that and see success from that and be able to kind of start to say, yeah, yeah, that is exactly the right way to do it. This is the right way to think. Um, you've got to keep in mind, for example, one of the things I advise companies is make sure that you identify intellectual property in the very beginning. What mm -hmm. makes you unique and what prevents you from being completely displaced? You have to protect your footprint. You have to protect your particular special sauce <laughs> like everyone else does. Yeah. Yeah. Amen.
So um, I wanted to talk more about you. Something you picked up on earlier, which was um, putting together these demos. Now, I've, I've also, we met in London uh, a few months ago, uh, maybe, maybe like six, seven months ago now, uh, when you were doing a demo of the current solutions that you guys have been putting together. And you were using NFC, you were using Alexa, you were using the voice command, all these different kind of triggers to get these Internet of Things to do what you want. And so also kind of connecting that with the way that we like to structure code and we like to look at design and how this is important to us. You know, tell me a bit about how we're bridging that gap a little bit between man and machine and making these things more usable. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the big challenges that we've always had with technology. And it, and I would say that it started many, many years ago because technology is created by programmers. And programmers, even back to the 1950s, think differently. They think in terms of message and structure. They think in terms of flow. And in doing so, their messaging, their communication, their way of interacting with their world, and I'm one of them, mm. is usually very, very direct. It's very, very completely factual. That is, uh, I send a message and it looks like this and this is the ID for it and this is the information and boom, this message, if found in a bottle in the middle of the ocean, still mm. has relevance, right? Yeah. They have to they have to, to to carry all that forward. And they, they think in terms of that, and and they limit their thoughts based on memory space, based on uh, CPU, how much processing power. They they limit their their thinking because they have to, mm. and they're very tethered. They're very down to earth, and they're very practical thinkers. Yeah, of course, I don't fit into all of those categories, but a, a few at least. Yeah, and in doing so, you you, you arrive here in you know the 21st century and you're trying to sell a programmable thermostat in a retail store to a mom or a bus driver or a lawyer, people who don't really want to program. They have lives to live and they have other people that depend on them. And, and, and this technology burden is too much and they choose not to, not to opt in. It all comes back to the fact that it's a program. Why would you tell them it's a programmable thermostat? It does so many other things that bring value. Programming is not part of that value. So part of the challenge we have with technology is that there is this, this gap, and the gap goes all the way into the usable nature of it. And simply, we call it the usability gap between yeah. man and machine. And we've tried it, right? We've tried to bring uh, machines that can do everything for you, but they become too expensive, it's possible to have really, really valuable and interactive technology, but it's extremely expensive. The other cho choice is, hey, we get people who know how to talk to machines. And that's what you do when you try to sell a programmable thermostat. That's mm -hmm. not really a solution either. Mm -hmm. The good news is technology processes, the cloud specifically, is starting to come up to speed so that things like natural language processing, that's what powers Alexa, enables us to now speak our own language without having to come down to the machine level yeah, and have that interaction with a piece of technology or multiple technologies. The good news is the gestures that we make now when we have a conversation with each other mm. can now start to be picked up by technology uh, and we can start to have you know, intelligent interactions based on that. There's lots of ways to provide that. Um, 
in input into the conversation. But the fundamentals to keep in mind is it is a conversation. So we have to keep those cues that we use in our own conversations and bring that into our technology. So I feel like for me, um, design thinking really started coming to its own when around the iOS devices were released, the, the iPhone, you know, because I watched a thing the other day Absolutely. about something Apple were doing. And it wasn't just the fact that they had rounded corners on their app icons and the phone looked like a candy bar. It, it, there was something I was reading um, about the QWERTY keyboard. Now, PDAs and uh, Sony Ericsson touchscreens and stuff had had QWERTY keyboards on. Instead of Blackberries, Blackberries had the physical keyboard. But touchscreen devices mm-hmm. had existed before the iPhone and they'd existed with stylus. What they didn't have is two fundamental things. Uh, multi-touch which allowed us to be more mm-hmm. natural and touch things in a net more natural way and the thing particular about the keyboard that made it work apparently they were quite a way down the line with the development of the phone but the qwerty keyboard just was not reactive enough so they said everybody stop everything let's get all these developers and design thinkers on this to work out why you know how they solved it was they would if you were typing the word the you know or the you would type a t and then it would use programming understanding to think, well, there's a good chance you might hit the H next. So what it would do is it would make the actual touch area of that more responsive. Then we touch that H, the E would become hypersensitive. So instead of just thinking like a programmer, like everything should have an even amount of pressure, that they actually try to predict using AI almost to try and help work out what keys need to be more sensitive to stop mistouches which was the most frustrating thing and almost unusable thing about using pdas or handwriting recognition on a pda was just dreadful you had to kind of do all these stupid shapes to try and create letters and for me that was a big change in understanding how humans work and try and letting machines try and work out how humans were going to use this well, I think it's a great example of design and technology coming together to ultimately reduce that usability gap because it, the way that we succeed is through multiple sciences, through multiple understanding. And that's a great example. I mean, the ability for you to kind of, I, you've always known, when, as you were telling the story, you've always known that it does that predictive lettering, but I don't think as many people were aware as it actually changes the the, the requirements of the keyboard as far as its sensitivity, mm. kind of anticipating it's actually a bigger swath area than you think it is and it's more responsive because it's anticipating that next letter. I think that's actually interesting because we, we actually jam on spell, tra- spell check mm. quite a bit, but not as much as we used to. No. Things are, you know, the, the, there's a term um, that when you kind of get changes happening around you so so um, so much innate into to what you're doing, so so natural to you. It's kind of called boiling the frog. Before you know it, you know you're you're boiled in a pot of water. I think that's what we're doing with technology, and specifically, you kind of look and you know, voice has gotten a lot better recently, and interactions are getting a lot more natural recently. And artificial intelligence is is making it so that when we go out and and get support. Things are much better. I mean, a simple one of the most simple things that really changed to me, like the area of technical support. When I, I get upset by the airlines or somebody, you know, is not not falling into my um, my uh, requirements for how people should, you know, services a service company. You you make that phone call. It takes a lot more to do it now. I'll get online and chat first. But when you actually make the phone call and they they welcome you by your name, 
right? They mm-hmm. recognize your phone call is tied to your account. A really simple thing to set context. You know, that's what it comes down to is you want a conversation. If you were to walk into your neighborhood store where, you know, everybody knows your name, then you want your technology to at least know your name as well, especially because you've given it real estate in your pocket for the last two years. Mm-hmm. At least it should know who the heck you are. Yeah. And, and it's great to finally seeing that happen. Yeah. And obviously that's powered by data. We, 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 we have all this data around us and it's, and getting better automation, um, better AI is around the data and how we look at that data, how we interpret that, whether that's a keyboard touch or whether that's using the right name at the right time. Um, and that's really interesting, I think. And, and, and so how do you see these interfaces for this coming together? Do you see voice being the primary way of doing this, uh, hand touch motion at the moment you know apple and android have been making big movements in the way the gestures happen the swipe you know a few years ago you know pinch to zoom wasn't a thing but now that's commonplace you know my little one-year-old girl wants to touch a screen and do stuff like this so it's become ingrained in what we do so how are we going to interface with these new machines better so there's a short-term answer and a long-term answer. The short-term answer is, yeah, I think, I think voice is going to be one of the dominant ways that we interact. We're already seeing it with our kids, right? They're, uh, I've got friends who have kids, and, and they're calling everything Alexa. They expect everything to respond to them. <laughs> um, and, and like anything, you kind of go too far in one direction. I think, I think that giving the kids that on-demand um, uh, access to the Internet is a great thing but at the same time you want to make it so that the there's a naturalness to that i don't want my kid to think that he could actually be rude right one of the challenges that you have today is kids don't say thank you to the technology and they don't um use manners with the technology so it gets into their mind that maybe they don't need to do that and that's a problem Hmm. so technology should really start to think about and then this goes to the ethics of the work that we're doing. The, the impact it has, it's much broader reaching than, oh, does it work or is it usable? It, is it done correctly? So when you think about that, a, a child that now can get the information they want and they don't have to use manners, then they start to walk up to their parents or, or, or you have some, somebody that's uh, even worse, uh, the friends of, their, of their, their friend's parents, and they start to be rude to them and they start to you know, demand just like they would with Alexa, that's, that's a problem. We have to break that cycle. We have to change that. And the only way to do that is to really, again, increase the technology's ability to interact with us like a human. And did you say thank you? Oh, no, Alexa, thank you. Oh, you know, simple things like that, simple um, mechanisms that create that natural interaction, that conversation you want to have, not the conversation just to get to the information. I think we forget about some of that. And, and especially when we start talking about artificial intelligence, we forget about the ethics because we are breakneck speed to the technology. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd say that the the data, like using the correct name or knowing that it's talking to a child rather than a adult is important so how are we going to use this data about the location in the room uh, on, on internet of things or data that exists within business systems to make these ais smarter 
Well, context is king in any conversation. It's about who, where, what, when, why, how. When you can answer these questions for context, then you have to, there's less that you actually have to ask. So the way that we do that is recognize that even the technology, even the conversation is not a single threaded experience. An example would be I I come home and I wanted to watch something on television or I want to listen to a given podcast or listen to information. The information that's queued up should have context of my day, should have context of where my brain space is at the time. So one of the things that is really interesting when you start to think about technology is, is we call it smart home, right? We call it um, smart business, smart. In, in reality, the commonality is humanity, people. And the goal of technology is to improve our lives, not to burden them. It's to make our lives more efficient. It's to make our lives more enjoyable. It's to free us up to do things that we want to do in our lives, not to supplant us not to replace us on an assembly line, not to take our jobs, but rather make our lives better. And in doing so, you have to realize that context and the knowledge of what it is that makes your life better is key. Mm. So I was at this um, summit down in Pebble Beach uh, a few weeks ago called the G Summit. It was an artificial intelligence gathering. And it was really exciting because... We're talking to like the head of neurology from Carnegie Mellon and, and all these esteemed academia from uh, Berkeley and from Stanford. And the message that I got back to them was very encouraging. And at the same time, it was discouraging. I'll talk about why it was encouraging. It was encouraging because I could see for the first time that artificial intelligence is much more about solving those problems, much more about helping people live longer in many cases. I saw some amazing demonstrations from companies that are scanning MRIs for anomalies, up to 60 different things that could be wrong with a human. They can find it faster and more reliable than a doctor's eye. It doesn't replace the doctor. He's still needed to to correct the procedure, but it takes a bottleneck from that, that, um, that doctor's you know, workload so that it can actually help identify the problems that are there that may not have been, have gone on, may have gone unnoticed mm. or may not have been noticed in time. So it was really amazing to see the technology do, and you didn't do that. And the trick with artificial intelligence is you don't tell it what to do. You give it some parameters. And in most cases, artificial intelligence is about a lot, a lot, a lot of parameters. Teach it photos. Here's what cancer looks like a thousand times, two thousand times, twenty thousand times. Here's what heart disease looks like, and it starts to be able to kind of notice the trends, and starts to now look at another photo and go, well, that matches the heart disease, so we need to flag this and and ultimately help this person live longer or live yeah. a better life. Yeah. So that's the. So obviously there are some big examples using the medical industry when there's lots of rows of data. So what kind of questions should we be asking ourselves when maybe not using AI necessarily yet, because we might not have access to the AI tools to, to do that in our business, but to automate or trans, digit, start to digitally transform our business. What are the kind of questions we should be asking ourselves? Why we should be doing it? Why we shouldn't be doing it? Those sort of things. 
Well, let me let me go back and say AI is is at the heart of it. It's you may think it's not far along, but it's everywhere in our lives today. Natural language that enables Siri and and Alexa and Google to speak is AI. Um, some support lines we talked about tech support. You call up support lines for certain companies, and it's already AI. Chatbots are powered by artificial intelligence and video. Video is one of the biggest areas where you see a lot of activity because you're looking at the frame-by-frame video of security or, as we mentioned, health or whatever that is, and it's analyzing. And and what makes it uh, intelligent is it has lots and lots of, of learnings. It has a lot of samples. It is able to see and start to recognize and learn. Now, the... In general, I think that the first thing you should ask as a company, as a business, as a corporation, um, why you need AI, it generally is to stay alive. Why you need technology Mm -hmm. to stay functional against your competitors. Because, (laughs) here's a great story. Um, One of the first things I did um, when I got uh, out of the military is I you know, I had a company, I was, I was running that, but I needed to get a, a job on the side and I did some consulting work. And I was working for a company, this is in the, this is in 96, I think. I was working for a company in Florida and <laughs> I went to a, uh, to a customer site and the customer was looking at the technology and, and he's like, well, I can see it on the screen. Why can't the computer see it? And he didn't understand the, the fundamental missing element between you know the human and the machine was well if i can see it surely the machine can see it and it's a much much different equation because the machine couldn't see it It, there was no way for actually the the just because you see it happening on the screen doesn't mean the machine already has that data Mm -hmm. so you have to create those pathways for the data and you have to figure out what that data is that you want so if i'm an enterprise and i want to be able to use technology and i want to compete against my competitors Mm -hmm. i need to know what data I need to know why I need the data. What problems am I looking to solve? Technology Mm -hmm. is there, as I said earlier, to make our lives better. That includes in the corporate world. What data do I need? What data do I need to make my uh, assembly more efficient, to increase my product line, to give me better support for my customers? How can I save time, save money, save resources, save lives? Mm -hmm. Those are the questions that fuel the Internet of Things and and AI and all of these things from a monetary you know functionality in the corporate world. So what can machines do better than I can, and what can I do better than machines? So that you're putting the humans in front of the customer experience more, and using the the machines to run automation for you uh, and do the more the mundane things. It would be for me when I talk to a customer and we're looking at how we can automate some processes or we're trying to solve some problems in the business. It's not to try and find out how to replace humans. It's how to make humans more human. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, 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 and let me just build on that for one second, because what can machines do better? The question then becomes what type of machine? Because not only do they have, you know, the regular computers that we're all used to, but now we're entering in the age of quantum computing which is a computing at the atomic level. And quantum computers do certain things much better than regular computers, which do things much better than humans. And they also don't do other things as well. So it's always that question of, well, what, what type of hammer am I going to apply to this nail? And, and is it really a nail or is it some sort of a architectural design? 
right? You want to make sure that you're hammering a nail to begin with, and you want to use the right tool for the right job. So computers are there to solve tasks that need um, bulk, right? You want to do things in bulk. You want to have a lot of information. Computers are there, um, and the opportunities are there because computers have their own language. There's already your payment system, your transport system, your logistics. So there's so many things that are already in the computer that it's hard for a human to pull that out, process it, and be kind of a man in the middle on these type of non-life-threatening uh, efficiency challenges. Yeah. One of the things we see is that people have a problem with connecting these things. They're connecting the, the payment processing tool with their paperwork or in the home automation world, I guess it's connecting their thermostat better with other elements in their house. Um, what kind of stuff, how can we connect things better? Or how can we look at that as a problem and look at how we can connect these things better, get them to talk to each other? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think it, comes down to one of the fundamental challenges of the internet of things it's, it's a it's a crazy title actually um it was created by kevin ashton back in the in the 90s and and, and kevin didn't intend for internet of things to be what it is today he actually was simply saying that, hey things are going to be connected and we've seen you know things become connected but what we look at how I look at the Internet of Things, and I speak about this and write about this on a regular basis, is it's just the next generation of compute. If you think about personal computers, where the really the first generation of, of compute for the mass market, what was the value proposition there? Where was the win? Uh, and the win was to make me more productive, make me more connected, make me more delighted, whatever that was. Um, was always about the individual, about the human, right? And when we went into mobile devices, that's the second generation of personal compute. It was the same thing. IoT is the same thing over again, but now the computers are smaller. They're better. They're faster. They have batteries. They last longer. They sense more stuff. And they're much, much more dense. That is, they have, there's a lot more density of these things around us. So there's going to be a lot more measurements that are going on, a lot more pixels for a higher resolution of experience. But at the end of the day, the opportunities are to make me more delighted, more connected, more efficient, more entertained, right? More yeah. productive. And we have to keep that in mind. It's, there's, it's, as I mentioned early on, the opportunity of being able to watch this for a quarter of a century is you see the cycles, you see things repeat, you recognize what's going to go, go and what's not going to go. And, and IoT is one of these terminologies that is absolutely a repeat of what we've seen before. The interesting thing about it, however, is the opportunities that are there. Like you mentioned, you've got, you've got all these different services, all these discrete, you have a lot more points of, of connection. So the key to making IoT work, the key to getting that thermostat work, the key to getting the payment system tied to the back end, you know, in enterprise system is the language that those particular pieces of technology speak. Because mm. just like humanity, you know, we speak, what, 201 language, 1600, including dialects, languages on this planet. We don't all speak the same language. We could never speak the same language simply mm. because there's a lot of us that have, you know, history in the language that we have and we don't want to relinquish it, period. Technology is the same way because while the technology doesn't make that decision, the companies that make it do, and mm -hmm. they want to stay unique and they want to stay their own. So the, the 
thing, the joke in the industry, and it's way over, over said, but I'll say it here just to bring it up, is the greatest thing about um, standards, that is the uh, languages that things have to speak. The greatest thing about standards is so many to choose from. And it's exactly right. There's all these different technologies, all these different sectors, and everybody has um, their own variation on the language. So your biggest challenge is the same challenge we have as humanity. How do you get on the same page? How do you translate back and forth? And those are called APIs. They're, the technical term is the Applicational Programmer Interface. But it is the language. It is the way that an external thing or service or person can communicate with that service or person or thing. And obviously, there's tools available out there like Zapier and Ifty that can help make these APIs a more friendly place to connect things, which is which is helpful <laughs> for people who can't write APIs. I mean, I always find also if you, if you kind of... Exactly, apiary. Yeah, you try and work out what you actually want to achieve because a lot of people go, yeah, I want to automate this or whatever. But if you know, sometimes you need to map out what it is you actually want to achieve or the efficiency you want to create. And then you'd be surprised how easy it can be to work out what tools you can use to connect all these things and get, and get going. Exactly, exactly right. And, and it comes, you, you nailed it. It comes back, what is it that you want to achieve? That's the bottom line is you, before you start a company, before you endeavor in anything, you kind of have to sit back and say, well, what is it I'm trying to do? Like this podcast, what did we want to accomplish in this podcast? And that was, we wanted to talk about technology and we wanted to go through kind of some natural evolutions and, and talk about this. Yes, this is what we're achieving because we set out to do that. And people have to do that for any of their goals. LaunchCloud created Transform podcasts and eBooks to help support you in your digital transformation. You want to download our books now? Go to launchcloud.com forward slash books. One of the things actually we wanted to talk about in the podcast is, was this kind of blurring between AI, automation, and mm. data that exists somewhere, and how this all kind of maps together into our world, into our business world, which we touched on a bit, our home life, which we've touched on, and our personal life. Um, so that, that, you know, I think we're sort of achieving that by, by understanding how, I mean, can you explain in simple terms how, I guess, AI automation is different? And where maybe AI, sorry, uh, where automation is um, disguising itself as AI? Or rather marketing itself as AI. Correct. Yeah, yeah I think that uh, automation, automation is the automatic operation of a solving a, a particular problem. That is, you know, automation uh, would be you walk in to your home, let's say that it happens in your home, and your, your lights come on and your um, thermostat, adjust, thermostat adjusts and your music, the whole Jetson scenario, that's an example of automation. In the corporate world, um, I'm able to push one button and my reports get, get converted, they get downloaded, they get turned into another format, and then they get spit out with a summary of here's the most important things about every, all that data I just ingested, right? Automation is there because it's in us. We work in the same way and we learn a lot of our technology from the way that we operate. Even the way our, our, we think our memories work in the way that we think our pro computers are designed very much like us. Automation in us keeps our heart beating. It keeps, our, it keeps us breathing. Those are called autom 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 automatic responses. 
That is, I don't have to think about it. Part of my brain is completely tied to keeping me alive and I don't have to think about it day to day. And I think from a corporation, from a home, that's the idea of automation is to kind of reproduce that type of, of operation. And, and that's great. In, in many cases, automation is actually a very valuable and very interesting thing. In many cases, we don't understand that automation is even happening. So automation could be um, what it actually takes you to find when you go to um, your favorite uh, BBC show. You want to watch a show online or you want to watch a show on a TV there's a lot of automated processes that are happening in the background or have happened before that have got it so that that's at the reach of your fingertips, right? That curated the show, that, that automatically pulled down the, the closed captioning, the, the content, all the things that are happening in there that ultimately allow you to sit back on a couch, have a beer, and enjoy a show or a game or whatever that is. There's a lot of automation behind that. AI, artificial intelligence, is something different. It's automation but it's learning it has the ability to take what it previously did and apply that as a new rule set as a new comparator to the next thing it does a child is an example of intelligence the child and i had some really great conversations at this ai summit and we were talking about how a four-year-old you could hold up a picture of a cat to a four-year-old and they're able to make out that okay there's four legs and there's a tail and they will then go through their lives with one sample of information and just start calling things cats until they see a variance they'll call a dog a cat they'll call anything with four legs a, a, a cougar is a cat well it really is a horse might be called a cat by the, by the child because it doesn't have any other comparison information but as soon as you show them a picture of a horse oh that's not a horse, that cat. Now that's a cat and that's a horse. And, and that is what we're doing with our technology, except it doesn't take one image. It takes 20,000 images to teach it what a cat is. But once it does that, the artificial intelligence, the artificial part of it being obviously machine and, and man-made is able to, to accomplish similar things, not necessarily even close to the same caliber that humanity is able to, but it's beginning to have that ability and we're, we're fashioning it after our, ourselves. We're building it based on how we think we, we think based on how our minds work. The challenge you have is if we start to look at all the processes of man and all the things that we do in our lives, good and bad, when you start to take humanity out of the decision process, that's when things can get a little scary. You know that um, just recently Elon Musk and um, Stephen Hawking and, and all these great minds have come out and said, you know what? We need to take a step back. AI can be the destruction of mankind. Well, you've got other folks on the other side of the camp like, um, like uh, Zuckerberg. So no, 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 it's not, not that far along. It's interesting because <laughs> let's just think about Musk's position. He's, he's now got 3,000-pound projectiles that are being propelled up to, well, <laughs> if you've got it in lunacy mode, up to, uh, you know, uh, I'm not even sure how, what the acceleration on these darn things are. They can outrun a Ferrari, and you yeah. can put them in an automatic mode to drive. You've mm -hmm. you got these weapons that are on the street, and now AI enables them to actually drive on their own. Right? Yeah. Right? Self-driving cars. Anytime you use the word self, 
that's in, in technology that starts to reflect the ability that it's actually figuring it out for itself. Now, it may not be AI today. Self-driving cars aren't necessarily AI. They have to make moral decisions, though. They already. are making dis- yeah. uh, moral decisions. They're not actually making moral decisions. No, 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 no. I'm saying They're making they need decisions, to. functional decisions. Yeah. Uh, no, they don't. <laughs> what I'm saying this is it, where this is where the camp starts to diverge for sure but, but there's obviously a human I mean the, the talk that's happened before is that yeah they don't make moral decisions absolutely right but but there's a, a human being about to crash into a person or crash into a wall has to make a moral decision on their own well-being and the people ahead of them so it's I guess is that what Elon is kind of alluding to that it's how do we get AI to make these decisions smartly that would that would actually align with humanity. Is that where you think it's going? Well, well, I think that the, I said it earlier, I think ethics are a big key to this. And, and I'm not sure if the genie's out of the bottle and uncontrolled yet or not. I think that that's Elon's position is we're too far. All we can do now is to, is to try and take a step back. All we can do now is try to, to do the right thing. Um, and I think Zuckerberg's position is we're not we're not that far yet. It's you're you're overhyping it. We're not. And, and I actually tend to lean, as I mentioned, on on Elon's side. And I think that um, for me, technology. So so when we were at this summit, I actually got on the microphone and I and I said, "Listen, I think that AI, artificial intelligence, is going to have a marketing challenge. And by marketing, I just mean evangelizing what they're doing to the masses." Hollywood has made it really inconvenient <laughs> for AI to permeate all of our lives. And, and it's probably a good thing, prolonged our existence for a while longer. And the marketing challenge is that they're calling it artificial, that they want to be artificial intelligence. What they really should be is human in the loop, that is augmented intelligence. As I said earlier, the, the goal of technology is to make humanity better is to all the things we talked about is to delight is to connect it's to inform that's the goal of technology it shouldn't be anything more than that mm-hmm. it shouldn't be to kill more easily it shouldn't be to um, um, steal more easily it shouldn't be to make people's lives hell by stealing you know their identity it should that should not be the goal of technology it should be the other. So when we start putting that moral decision, we give it the ability to make its own decisions. You have to think about the bad side of things. You have to think about what could go wrong. And I don't think we do that enough. When I was at this summit, I was actually pretty disturbed when I saw how some of the um, the kids that were in their uh, in their doctorate um, and working on their thesis were thinking about AI. This specifically, um, very, very renowned university. I'm not going to call anybody out here. Mm-hmm. But they showed uh, the ability for AI to naturally navigate um, complex patterns. And specifically, they used the video game Doom, low-resolution graphics, the whole thing. But they wanted to be able to go around and say, tell the system, hey, find everything that is a treasure or find everything that is red or find the tallest thing. And, and pretty soon... It was able to actually identify and know what tall was and know what red was and know what treasure was. And, and it was able to do that. The unfortunate thing is five minutes after that, it was killing everything in the maze because the kids told it to. Now you see AI walking around, blowing away all the 
the human figures, which obviously violates the first law of robotics and the second law of robotics and the third law of robotics pretty badly. Um, it's just throwing that moral compass right out the window. And the problem is not, that's the natural tendency of these kids because that's, they, they do that. There's no, no consequences when you do that in the video game. There's no consequences when you do that, you know, as you're growing up. But the professors allowed that to actually make it all the way to this AI summit. And that, if that video was to leak out, even though it didn't look like a big deal, to me, it was horrifying because it shows a lack of grounding, a lack of understanding the, the bigger implications of not only the message of what you're showing others what can be done, but just the most basics of where you're going to go to give your technology power. Yeah. This, this is what concerns me. This is what concerns Elon and Hawking. And, and I think to some degree Zuckerberg is concerned about it. He just doesn't think it's as far along as it is. Yeah, you're in the Elon camp <laughs> with that one, especially after this summit. In the Elon camp. I mean, what I've seen with commercial businesses trying to commercialize and make AI more accessible is what the guys at IBM are doing with Watson um, and, and how they're kind of giving some of the building blocks of Watson for people to use for good. You know, and obviously there's a validation process there. You know, Watson won Jeopardy and then it won some chess. And then, um, you know, it can, it can, sift through medical data and i don't know if you've seen their watson platform or had a little play around in it yet it's there if you want to have a go um it is being able to use this ai product that's very very powerful in little bite-sized pieces to, to make it commercially viable and actually start introducing it into products so have you, have you seen this jim yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and and yeah watson's got it google's now got it um there's a there's companies I live in Silicon Valley, so there's companies all around that are doing AI. I was actually able to speak to the guy that runs the Watson program at the AI convention, guys that are at Google, they're running AI at Google, the guys in the self-driving cars at Uber. Uh, all this, these folks were you know, at this one place, and, and it is becoming um, AI is an API. AI is a, is a, just a service that you can use to connect and, and throw data at it, and it spits out whatever it is you want it to spit out. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's exciting and I think we could see some cool stuff coming from it. But like you say, it's keeping it, <laughs> keeping watching ourselves <laughs> before we wreck ourselves. Um, and that kind of leads me a little bit yeah, to, exactly. to, to bots and how bots differ. Because I think bots have, have made a massive impact definitely in the technical world and are now creeping into the world of everybody else through Facebook Messenger and other kind of apps that help yeah. automate uh, or help with some intelligence around bots. What, what are your thoughts on these little guys and what they can help us with or do? Um... <laughs> so it's great because it, it, it is the mouthpiece of all the other technology we've been talking about. And the thing about bots is, and somebody actually brought this up. I don't get credit for this, but somebody said this at the AI convention. Um, he said, you know, in 10 years, it's probably going to be a legal obligation for technology to start a conversation and say, under article, blah, 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 I must tell you that I am artificial intelligence before it engages with you. Yeah. Because it is becoming that natural. Bots, bots are interesting because they're, the, the, the thing about technology that is most um, powerful and at the same time the scariest part is you actually see the convergence of it all. Bots are the... Right now, we talk about bots only in the textual form. But guess what? We have speech-to-text. So suddenly, now they can have a voice, 
right? Um, so you have bots that can generate what the text is. You put a little voice on that, and now you can have a conversation just like you can have a typewritten conversation. It's the same thing for me, same medium. Yeah. So these things are able to get more context, they're able to, to interact and, and start to be much more natural. One of the best movies to see if you're interested in any of this is Spike Jones's movie, Her. Because that, that film was, was, a, was a precursor to our relationships with technology. And we already see it. We already see ourselves making bad social decisions and, and even in some cases putting ourselves in danger because we are looking at the screen. And it's not about the screen. It's about the information the screen holds, how compelling it is, how addictive it is. How many times, for example, how many times do you, th do you think today, every day you check, not to give an app, but how many times do you turn on your phone a day? Me. <laughs> like, yeah, you. Um, lots. I'm calling you out. Right yeah, now. call him out. Um, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's email, it's Slack, it's, it's videos, and, and now having an Apple Watch, I, I had no idea, a lot. Exactly. And, and that's, imagine now that it has an interactive nature to it that you can actually say, oh, this is in friend mode. So now I can start to share with me, you know, the, the highlights for the stuff that is exactly my sense of humor. Mm. And I can jab back at it and it can, you know, use other comments. It starts to get really, really blurry. Um, and and at the, again, the biggest challenge is as it's doing today, you see these kids sit and they're having dinner together, but they're on their phones, but they're probably texting each other as well as 20 other people. Yeah. The idea that I can actually, that I'm actually getting so enthralled in the technology, I forget about humanity is a challenge. Yeah. And I think that, I think that that comes back to the augmenting the intelligence uh, action activity. There's, there's a technology that I think is actually most encouraging to, to bring us back to a social interaction and a more natural interaction with, with less chiropractic challenge, <laughs> and that is um, augmented reality. The ability to not have us look at a screen anymore, but to give us the ability to see overlays in our real world. That excites me more time, than that excites me more than out the real world. Oh, sorry, Jim. That, that excites Absolutely me more. Does. Yeah, excites me more than I, I, you know, virtual reality completely. Because you know, there's that whole minority report thing, or you know, able to see things in your physical world really excites me with that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, it's tied to Minority Report, which is a pretty dark film. <laughs> but the ideas that were, you know, that Philip K. Dick and a lot of these guys back in the 50s and 60s, you know, predicted are, are really are really moving along at, a, at an interesting pace. So I think that I think that when you think about augmented reality, the, the offering and we see it today, it's already out there. There's a company that uh, does industrial automation they call PTC that has a, a technology called Vuforia that makes it easy for elevator operators to work on their elevators. HoloLens is moving along at a, at a very impressive rate. Um, you've got Epson. You've got all these other companies that are building technology specifically for businesses, right? It's in the, the field support people, the, the guys that are out there that need to use their hands while they're working. Right? That's the first application that we're finding, but... We're also going to start to see a lot more personal stuff. Virtual reality, you're absolutely right. It makes you, uh, the way I look at it is virtual reality makes you a social idiot. And augmented reality can make you an idiot, uh, a uh, idiot savant. That is, you know so much about a given topic. And, and now let's go back to build it into the entire conversation. Let's talk about how 
Technology and IoT is able to discover your surroundings and make it more contextual. Talk about how voice interaction can give you the ability to interact in gestures and gestures and move that to something, you know, a pair of glasses that can now track your retina and see where you're looking and see where you're focusing. And all of this and automation to, to kind of bring all those things together. I walk into a store and it sees where I'm looking, very much my minority report, and then, uh, and then move into artificial intelligence and chatbots that are there the whole way to kind of guide you and, and, and be your personal assistant. This idea that our worlds are are very um, technology burdened, inter- intertwined, yes, but burdened, right? I think the the cell phone is an example of a technology burden. We just talked about how it, it it's kind of I, I see the commercials here in the U.S. to um, get people to stop smoking. Um, Truth, I think they call the advertisement campaign. And it fits cigarettes into these kids' lives and shows how it destroys them. And like, you gotta, you gotta give me, you know, your teeth if you want to smoke. And it, the way it kind of ties all that in a very dark way, technology is you, you've got to, you've got to give me your spine. You've got to, you've got to give me your time. You've got to give me that warm fuzzy feeling you had with your kids. You know, it's, it's really interesting because there's an addiction. We've already talked about that. But when you start to make it so it's more threaded, more weaved into our lives, like augmented reality has the offering to do, has the opportunity to do, it does make us kind of more superhuman. It augments us. That's the best word. It makes us more than we are. And yeah. that's, the, that's the promise of technology. So like you, augmented reality is the most exciting thing that's, that's, that's out there in technology. Everything else is supporting cast. But the, the star that I'm really looking forward to is augmented reality. Me too. I, I saw it. There's a startup here out of London that we did some work with. And they were using Google Glasses and augmented reality for people who are hard of sight. So these glasses were seeing for them and then giving them indications about their surroundings. And, you know, that was kind of gave me fuzzy feelings about how exciting that could be. I mean, that's someone with, with poor sight or no sight but with people with sight, obviously there's tons of potential as well. Like you say, to, to augment over the top of reality to help you understand your surroundings better. And I got pretty excited at that. So yeah, absolutely. Zo- that's like around our persons, right? Let's zoom out because one of the things that excites me uh, and you as well is the smart city. And what is a smart city, Jim? Tell us, set that scene first. Yeah. So, so if you think about, okay. So if you think about this smart home or smart life, you know, you've got your, your basics. So there's a, there's a great game that I've been using as a fundamental driving force behind everything I, I, I do when I think about interaction, and that's Will Wright's game, The Sims, that creates this virtual world. It starts with an individual that has these key parameters. They've got health, they've got work, they've got love, they've got um, attention span. They've, just the parameters that track how they are and how they interact with everything around them. And everything else's job is to actually affect those core numbers zero to 10 for those values for that, that you know, show how that person interacts. I think that technology and IoT is kind of doing something like that. But that person lives and works in a city. They live and, 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 and are entertained in the city. They, and, and I think smart cities are, are a great example because whatever you do in your house, Right, you transport in your house. That is, you walk around, or you open a garage door, or you open a door, or you you do something to get around, and then you get in your car and you transport from point A to point B, 
And when you're in a smart city, you have buildings and buildings have elevators and you transport up and down. And the whole idea of, of first mobility and moving around, that's a very big problem when you increase the density of you. <laughs> when you go from, from one person or five people in a household to 500,000 people or 5 million people in a city, the problems are still the same on an individual basis, but it turns into a brand new challenge when you start to put those numbers on it, especially when you take the other variants like weather and construction and, and all these other things that are necessary to keep the transportation, uh, well, transportation moving, uh, the challenges that come up and the, and the planning that has to happen for that, that becomes a, a system in itself. And that's one piece of a smart city is how do you get around? How are you mobile? Second one is, okay, where does power come from, right? How do you provide power? The third one is, how do you provide other resources? Where does my water come from? Where is my internet? That's, that's a core resource for existence. Where does that come from? The, the next you think about, okay, that's just the baseline. So if you were to draw, um, a couple of years back, I did a, a, a pyramid, um, a, a graphic. I took Maslow's hierarchy of needs and created a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's on TechCrunch if you wanted to look it up. Just look for my name and, and uh, hierarchy of IoT needs. You'll see that, that triangle, that, that pyramid. Um, I think cities would have the same thing. And the things I've just described are kind of the basics for existence, right? Yeah. Water, power, transportation, internet. Uh, those, those are the basics. And then once you get above that, then you've got people, once you're mobile, you've got to go, you've got to, go to work, right? Well, what's that look like for, for a work environment? And it's not, not necessarily about the job specifically that you do, but what do you need when you go out into society? If you're not, you know, hold up in your apartment with your power and your internet and those other resources, now I'm moving around. Well, we now we got to keep you safe. So now you have safety and security and your police, you got You have to deal with the rogue elements that are out there that are going to cause problems that you don't ex you know, expect. So that's your, your, police force and your fire and, and your emergency services. So emergencies happen. Here's emergency services to help take care of that, right? Um, food. Where does food come from? How does food get into the play? And every one of these things, and, and we could just go on and on and on in this plumbing and all kinds of interesting, important things. But the bottom line is as you go through each one of these systems, you find areas where technology can make it better. You find areas where more information is better, right? And, and I think that's the key. That's the promise of what IoT has to offer. It's a promise of what uh, automation of the information from IoT and the actions that the IoT can take uh, is better. It's a, it's a promise of where AI applied to the information and applied to the activities can make things more seamless, make things more interactive. And we haven't even touched on retail, how you buy things, how you consume things, how you dispose. We haven't talked about any of those things, but that's where smart city becomes really interesting because all of those are on the table. All of those are opportunities for improvement. We didn't even talk about medical. Medical's massive. Actually, that's one of the fundamentals. How do we keep the human body moving? How do we keep alive in this wear product that we're, we have for about 100 years, if we're lucky? So are so, we on the back foot as... London and New York and San Francisco are we on the back foot because we've already gone so far and these new emerging cities have an advantage because they can start from the ground up with this stuff or are we at an advantage because we already have some of this stuff and it's about connecting the dots well I so there's there's this terminology called greenfield 
Greenfield is I'm going out and I'm building something brand new. You always have the opportunity to rethink and redesign. And, and Greenfield is absolutely necessary for the continued evolution of mankind. You always have to have a clean slate, a green field to actually approach an opportunity. The good news, for a long time, it was, it was a burden to be the early adopter, the first one there, because surely um, things will change four, five, ten, ten thousand times by the time it, it hits the next generation and the next generation. That's just the nature of the way we innovate, the nature of how innovation happens. But if you look at some of the cool technologies we're having, we, we think a lot more from a, a retrofit perspective these days, a radio. Radio is amazing what we're continuing to do with it, right? Here, actually around the globe right now, the big uh, uh, talk is around 5G. Now, we have 4G in many places. And, and again, there's parts of the world that don't even have that. So we're very fortunate to have the technologies that we have today um, from that perspective. 5G is not, oh, it's just a little bit faster than 4G. 5G is fifth generation. 4G stands for fourth generation, third generation, so forth and so on. Fifth generation is going to be 20 times faster upload and download than fourth generation, and it's going to be wireless. It's going to offer new challenges, new infrastructure requirements, but at the end of the day, in an existing city, New York City, London, wherever that may be, now radio has the opportunity to bring more data and do more. You don't have to worry about the greenfield opportunities where you can run fiber. You don't have to worry about oh, I've got to put all this infrastructure under the ground or, or whatever for, you know, just basically for communications, right? Yeah. Now, if you think about transportation, yeah, you got a little bit more of a challenge. In greenfield opportunities, you've got the opportunity to um, design based on all your learnings from before, right? You know how important a subterranean part of a city is, absolutely. You know how important um, traffic is and, like, for example, I, I drive a lot in San Francisco. Traffic is absolutely horrible because the crosswalk and the left turn signal turn on at the same time. So it's, in fact, my daughter was hit by a car because of that particular situation. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a greenfield opportunity, uh, even, even somewhere great like Paris, Paris, you go under the ground. You don't go through the intersection if you don't have to. You go under the ground in the tunnels. That's why the subterranean system is so important. Or in Vegas, you go over the road. Because they, could, they didn't go under the ground. Instead, they put these little you know, walkways over the road. And, and there's different ways to solve the problem. But ultimately, traffic in those places is so much better than places where you don't pre-think that. So, in, in, again, we're just talking about one very small subsystem of this, of the transportation mobility. But there's, you can go back and look at all the different opportunities that are there. But technology and the advancement of technology um, will continue to advance, to make integration into existing infrastructures, existing uh, cities easier as we go along as well. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that in our personal life and our business life. These tools, these technologies we're using are becoming more connected. It sounds really corny, you know, we're connected, but it's actually our applications and our hardware devices that are actually communicating with each other better because of that unified API language. And I think that's really going to push us on in the software world. Um, Jim, I want to wrap up and I want to wrap up with any kind of recommendations you have uh, for how we can get cracking with automation or AI today in personal business life. Just simple things that are available out there that we could be using or ways we could be thinking about how to move into the future. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at business life. If you've got a business and you are not 
automating your payment, if you're not automating your, uh, your inventory, if you're not automating as much as you possibly can, you're making your life harder than it has to be. There's lots and lots of companies that are out there. There's lots of resources to find out about the companies that are out there. I mean, you guys specifically automate the process of paperwork. You specifically automate the process of payment. You, um, LaunchCloud does a lot in the field of making it easier to be a businessman, to be an entrepreneur. Um, it's a great example of, of you know, how you could do that. In the case of your life, you want to automate your life. And, and I highly recommend Alexa. I highly recommend technology or even Google Home is continuously evolving. Have technology that you can talk to. And, and we're going to find that basically back in the business, back in the corporate world, right? You're going to walk into your office and instead of having, um, you, you may still have an assistant to do all the heavy lifting for you, but instead of having to burden your assistant and say, hey, what, what happened this weekend or what's going on? You may just actually ask your office and say, hey, tell me about the day. What's, what's my summary for what happened over the weekend, right? Or what's coming up? Tell me what's on my schedule for tomorrow and the next day. And then be able to have an interactive conversation so that you, you're able to bring that natural uh, removal of that gap, that usability gap we talked about from the very beginning between your processes, your information data, and, and, and your things and, and humanity. So I think that we'll find that in the corporate world very soon. And Alexa is a great example of, of one of those technologies that I highly recommend you get and you start to play with. It's not Siri. It does so much. It works differently and it does things differently. And Google Home works differently. I recommend if you have the opportunity to get any of those technologies, they will get you in the door and get you started with your next generation of uh, interaction with technology. Yeah, I can second that. I love my Alexa. I think there's going to be a little bit of an integration war in the future with are you Apple Home, Google Home, Alexa, and what integrations it does and things like that. Uh, and I think that's uh, where there's going to be a big push, I think, is, is what ecosystem are you in and how many support each other, things like that. Where you know, Because I'm using Apple Music, which is not supported by my Alexa, things like that. So it's where my allegiances are going to fall, <laughs> I find. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Jim? Thank you so much for your time. I think there's been tons of information there. We've gone over Internet of Things. We've gone at AI, the good things about it, the scary things about it, uh, about the usability and interface of these softwares, how we can use them better in our life and our business. I think for me, I've learned a lot today as well. Um, and thanks very much for your time. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And uh, I really look forward to actually, this was really fun. Uh, as you know, I'm working on a book as well called Recollection, um, my first sci-fi novel. And I would, uh, I bring all of this into that. I bring all the, the thinking about the future and where we're going to go and, and with, maybe with a little bit of dark spin to it. But really, it's in my, it's in my head 24-7 thinking about this. And, and it's been a pleasure actually putting this into, into something other people would be able to consume. Yeah, so we'll have a podcast I've, on that later on. Oh, no, I'd love to, Jim. We, we've actually, you sent me some of the early versions of it and I've got to get deeper into it again. But every time me and Jim talk, we go over these kind of crazy sections in the book. So I, I'd love to do a podcast for a bit of fun on that um, and go into it and look at the sort of dark side of the future. <laughs> so yeah, I'm absolutely up for that. So we'll get that booked in to do that. Thanks, Jim. It was great having you on the show and we can't wait to see you again. Thank you, everybody. That was our first Transform podcast with Jim Hunter.